The brothers wish. The brothers wish, brothers wish. The brothers wish. The brothers. You're now listening to Greg. It's the Brothers Whisper. Hey, everybody. This is Greg with the Brothers Whisp number 136. I'm coming out of the motherland, Texas. It's moist here. It's been raining like crazy. Non-stop for about a week and a half. It actually killed my pickleball tournament last Saturday. Rather, Sunday. So, uh, things could be better. And uh, that's all I've got to complain about. But uh, Nick Arellano here from Illinois has, has more worries. He's got a lot of does coming at him. How you doing, bud? Doing pretty good. It, uh, things kind of settled down, and now I'm uh, I'm back to Zen. So we're okay. <laughs> Excellent. Well, it's good having you. Actually, hang on just a second. Let me click a couple of buttons while we're talking. Vamp, tell the people something. You got tell the people things. Come on, man. Here we go. Oh, I got, oh I, okay. <laughs> like, wait, are you, ta- are you talking to me? Are you yeah, talking I'm to somebody talking else? To you. I'm talking to Nick A at hey.com. Uh, All right. Nick A at hey.com. All right. That's I me. got you. I just had to uh, fix a little microphone level thing over there. All right. Ooh. So uh, let's uh, let's get the things out of the way. We've got some new patrons. We've got uh, Bro Turner. He is our newest patron. He actually came in a little while ago. We obviously missed last go around. Uh, Mikey had something come up last minute. And, man, it just seemed like a perfect storm. Everybody had stuff to do. I think you were at a wedding. So mm-hmm. we ended up uh, just uh, taking a little break. It's actually kind of kind of nice sometimes. And you would think I would have a giant list of stuff to uh, talk about, but uh, I, uh, I definitely took full advantage of not doing anything. So our list is a little bit smaller this go around. But I digress and I walk back and say that we were talking about patrons. You go to patreon.com forward slash your brother's wisps, throw us a couple of bones, and you get access to our little brother's with Slack where there's a lot of Really good information. Bro's actually already in there uh, doing the thing. Or as I like to call him, brah. <laughs> brah. Brah. <laughs> but let's get some of the uh, sponsors out of the way. So I'm going to do the ad copy today. I'm going to give Nick a rest. I usually give him a hard time. So I'm just going <laughs> to let him chillax this go around. But we are brought to today. This podcast is sponsored by our longstanding Sonar uh, it's a scalable, intuitive, and comprehensive ISP and operational support system. Check these guys out at sonar.software. Thank you, Sonar. We also have QuickBit. That's K-W-I-K-B-I-T.com. They have their store going. So if you go to their website, you can actually order online, have that kit come to your doors. So they do indoor and outdoor 60 gigahertz kit. That's like, uh, it's pretty much set it and forget it, right? You just put it in there. You don't have to think about it. If you do want to think about it, it's got a lot of good telemetry options. It's got a really good API. It's got deployment tools if you want to use in advance. Uh, it does solid distance and uh, up to eight clients per hub. So go check those guys out at quickbit.com. We also have towercoverage.com. Deep breath in. Tower Coverage is your RF propagation system to empower your network real-time data metrics, enable your coverage area, reaching your customer base, and more. The industry's best RF propagation mapping system allows website integration for customer sign-up and pre-qualification. Use this data to scientifically plan network expansion and help your WISP succeed. Get a free trial today at towercoverage.com. All right. All right. Let's truck it. Got through it. <laughs> Knocked it out. Yeah, man. Just get in there. You just do the thing. You just bosh it. Let's see. So, Nick Arellano, smart guy. What do we have in here? 
I uh, looks like your first item's uh, something right up your alley. Yeah, yeah. Network compliance detection and alerting <laughs> with Ansible. What can, what can you tell me, Mr. Greg, about Ansible and uh, <laughs> network compliance detection and alerting? What's that all about? I don't know, man, but I like this radio voice that you're uh, that you're affecting. <laughs> <laughs> this AS, ASMR on the uh, the sure mic is maybe a little bit more than I can handle. I need to pull the earbuds out, go back to the speakers. Now, uh, network compliance detection alerting. So uh, that's one of the things we talk about a lot uh, with various customers. And so I finally um, made a demo as far as that goes. And I uh, had a conversation with Jimmy and asked him, you know, because it's like a lot of times I'll know how I do stuff, like how like my brain, yep. you know, I'll, I'll think in this linear line, this is how I would do something. Um, but I found it's really... Uh, probably best for me to take five minutes and ask somebody else what's your I mean what are you seeing people do because you know he's been at this uh, game a lot I think he's been doing the Ansible gig for about three years now so he's seen a lot more than I have right I just you know I'm still kind of wet behind the ears as far as that stuff goes and so he had a little bit different twist on it and I loved it and so I ran with it and made a demo um, but the the basic idea is a lot of these big enterprise companies want to um, want to make sure that there's not configuration drift on their hardware, right? They, they want to make sure that random tech is not logging in and making tweaks and just leaving them. Yeah. Uh, you know, cause people would never do that. Um, but uh, there's also a lot of them have compliance reasons like government mandated compliance, right? Like HIPAA compliance or, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Sorbane-Oxley or, you know, whatever the stuff happens to be, you know, they have to be able to prove that, uh, that they're, uh, say, security-wise, that they're adhering to all their security policies or whatnot. So they have to do that across thousands of network elements, you know, on a regular basis. And that's just not something a normal human can can do, right? So you turn to automation. And how do you do that? The, uh, the way I went about it, as per Jimmy's suggestion, is you kind of have uh, one playbook to rule them all. So the idea being the playbook you create is the playbook you use whenever you first configure a switch, right? Like I, I get an IP on it, I'm getting ready to put it in the network, or I've already placed it in the network and I'm going to have it do configuration on there. I run this playbook. And for my demo, I did NTP servers and SNMP community strings, right? Just some low-hanging fruit, really simple, easy ones. So I did those. And I didn't store, um, I didn't store the commands... Uh, in like a Cisco format because I was doing it against Cisco switches. Uh, and I did that because I wanted to do it multi-vendor, right? So I just used a vendor agnostic data model. So I said, uh, I created a, what did I do? I created a file. It's just like a plain text file that says like US NTP servers.txt or whatever it was. And uh, for all those devices that were in that region, I just had a variable assigned to their inventory item that said, this is your location. So when it would look up and use the proper file, right? So I could theoretically run this across my infrastructure, you know, across the entire globe and it'll look for its regionalized stuff and, and utilize it. So you could also break it up by um, state or you could break it up like say you were, I mean, theoretically think like a wisp. If it was off of a specific tower, you could say, here's this tower specific settings, you know, that I want all these devices out there to use. And so it would pull that file, grab those settings. I just had it saved in a, in a variable that said servers, and here they are, all ones, all twos, and uh, to utilize those in the place. So you kind of make it vendor agnostic by having a just a data model where this is what 
I'm storing it as, and then at runtime, you pull it, check what operating system it is, and then apply it based on that. So in this instance, I get a new switch, I put it in, I run this playbook, it'll actually grab those settings and it will apply them to the device. Bob's your uncle. Um, but Ansible has this thing called check mode where I can run it and it will just look at the playbook that I have, right? All the automations I want to perform and it will see what changes will I make, but it won't actually make those changes. So I had it go through, do that, and any adjustments that it needed to make, it would um, it would actually hit like this block of code at the bottom that would just say, hey, did you need to make uh, a removal? Uh, you know, it would just go through every device kind of one by one. And if it said yes for, say, switch one, then it would add a line to the text file for noncompliance uh, that said, hey, I had to remove one. And then it would jump to the section where it's like, hey, did I have to add anything? It would run through, if it found one, it would just add it to this text file that said non-compliance, you know, in there and, and told you what it was. So it would run through all the various pieces. And then at the very end of that, it would create like a ticket in the uh, ticket system uh, based on that and uh, just stop, really. So the idea being you could schedule that to run, uh, you know, every night or every week or whatever you want it to be. And it would, you know, create an incident that, you know, I say incident. Most of these folks are using ITSMs right? Like service now or something like that. Um, and so they call, um, you know, it's like a special nomenclature they use, right? Where you have problem, incident, service change, all that crap. So generally they refer to it as an incident. So it would create an incident that would show, Hey, these things are non-compliant, or you could have it create an incident that says, Hey, everything was compliant. That way, whenever the auditors come through, you could just pull a report, show them this and say, yep, see, we are actually in compliance. You can see where we were out of compliance at that one point. We repaired it, you know, whatever it happens to be. Somebody asked me at one point, you know, whenever I've been in the course of talking about this stuff is like, um, you know, could we just have it run and, and, uh, you know, make it, uh, do the adjustment every night, you know, like if something was out of compliance and fix it, I said, well, absolutely. You could do that. But what happens if you're in the middle of break fix, you know, and you're, you're making tweaks and changes. Yep stuff to, you know, I mean, you had to like cripple this or you had to shut off a link over here to make, you know, it's like, you don't want to undo any of that stuff. Or, you know, if you're, you're testing something because you're having some anomalies, yeah, you definitely don't want the system to override any of that stuff. So at least in the network space, to me, it makes a lot of sense to just generate a report of non-compliance as opposed right. to uh, actually going in. Somebody also said, Hey, could we have it so that whenever we make a change on a network device, it kicks a message to like our syslog server and then that will call the tower API and it'll it'll kick off this non-compliance check. I was like, yeah, absolutely you could. But once again, what if I'm in break fix and I'm making changes? I was like, it's gonna kick off a report for every freaking one of those changes you're doing. It's like, that doesn't make sense, right? It's, it's not um, really manageable because you're gonna be creating a whole bunch of incidents over and over and over related to you trying to troubleshoot this stuff. And so you're just gonna muddy the water, so. Really, to me, makes sense more to just do it on a regular scheduled interval. What are your uh, What are your thoughts on all of that? What do you think? I mean, you said everything that I was going to say. <laughs> no, but uh, it's hard. I, I, it's hard I'm to a do fan of. Sure. Um, I'm a fan of like nightly just audit checking. I think you got to be careful in the realm of of changes, especially you know if you have an outage or something, and also you can't really. Um, unless you have a whole team of programmers, you can't think of every possible failure and how you would remedy that failure. 
So it's going to take a lot of man hours to try to come up with all the logic to find all the possible ways you could change the configuration and, and fix it or even try to work around and check. But there's certain things like uh, there's some compliance where there's there's certain ports that just can't be open on your equipment. Like if you've got some PCI compliance and you want to be able to check, like, can I even hit these ports as like a simple check? There's a lot of things you can do like that that are just read only that say, hey, something's non-compliant. You should probably fix it. So there's stuff like that that I think there's a lot of value in running it every night as just a, a safeguard or a check. And, you know, if, if it's not making any changes and it's just letting you know what's going yeah. on, I mean, you're going to know that it's in a change window. Um, and then doing things in response to, like, syslog, it, it really just depends on how intrusive that's going to be. And um, it's kind of like a ping watchdog thing where if you turn on ping watchdog to reboot stuff when an IP is not reachable, but you want to re-IP something and you forget about that, <laughs> you know, it's it's that same type of thing. So I guess it depends on how much it's going to touch and manage the equipment and how much you've invested into automation in the first place. But Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely one of those things where it's... um a crawl walk run sort of scenario and like you said <clears throat> i mean that's what we recommend like i mean that's built into our slide deck is uh that uh, the first thing you should really do when you start automating is just read only stuff you know you're going out you're pulling information whether it be like um you know let me audit all the vlans that exist across this site or across my entire infrastructure or you know go and pull the firmware version and model you know, make a model of all my equipment and, you know, create a report or something. I mean, you know, the low hanging fruit that stuff you would have to do anyway, but, um, you know, it kind of teaches you the automation and gets you more comfortable with it in, uh, in a safe environment where you're not going to just blow everything up. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Don't let it completely take the wheel, but <laughs> take, take the stuff that's kind of annoying and tedious and let it do kind of do that for you and like guide you when there's a problem so that you can just resolve stuff faster. But yeah, you probably shouldn't uh, jump head first and give some uh, AI software full control of your your stack. <laughs> no, but it's that it's that whole dream that I've never I've never seen anybody truly achieve it all the way. That's uh, infrastructure is code, right? Where you just have a data model where you define what um, you know uh, this router, all the configurations should look like. You define in this data model, and then the automation actually goes and makes it so. Uh, I've never seen anybody do it across their entire infrastructure. There's always some stuff yeah. where it just doesn't make sense to do that or whatever. Um, and even in those scenarios, I'm still an advocate for just do detection. Don't actually do correction automated on a schedule mm -hmm. because, yeah, at some point somebody's going to be trying to fix a problem and you don't want the system fighting with them while they're doing it. But it's tricky. Um, I talk to a lot of folks in networking and to be honest with you most of the enterprise guys if they are using some automation <clears throat> it's generally like um like a proprietary tool like cisco's uh, uh aci mm -hmm. or their uh data center network manager was that dcnm which is kind of like the holistic product and aci sort of fits under that umbrella with a lot you know so they're just using like proprietary tools that work on very specific pieces of equipment or, you know, like in the WISP industry, you've got like, well, like CN Maestro, I guess, or, uh, the ubiquity controller. I'm doing air quotes here that kind of, you know, you know, does some, uh, automated uh, stuff in there. Right. But it's, it's not, it's not a holistic manage my entire environment, right. Even on the network side, you know, let alone the server infrastructure you're maintaining, 
uh, or maybe the security appliances or, you know, whereas Ansible, the platform itself can actually do that across all that stuff, but it's not necessarily the easy button, right? It does take work and you have to kind of ease into it. But I like it better than custom scripting because <laughs> it's so much easier for a new guy to walk in and see what's going on. Pick up and move. Yeah, so the if your goal is to replace your people, it's probably it's probably not the right direction. But um, <laughs> well, I mean, think you know, about there's, it. There's like think about um, think about the 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 complicated systems you build, Nick. Like as far as automation goes. Now imagine a junior guy trying to come in and start helping you do that stuff. Like, can you imagine it being easier with like an automation platform where it's like super easy where there's tasks? Right versus like having to be a full-blown programmer that um, uses like really good practices and you know I mean it's it's just it, to me well, it's so much easier you know the, the back end is different from the presented front end <laughs> so the back end might be complicated but the the goal is always to make the front end for a CSR level person to use the tool yeah so and everything's kind of a risk assessment like if if your equipment if, if firmware involved is just copying a file over SSH and rebooting that's probably a very low risk assessment depending on, you know, you need some logic to say like, uh, make sure to firmware the, the network stuff that's the furthest out and work your way in mm -hmm. in case there's compatibility problems. But there's things like that where uh, you, you can mitigate and build some simple logic to do like mass scale firmware updates. So like those are the things that make sense to automate where you could give any entry level person a really, a really simple GUI to like do that to save in time efficiency. But you know, maybe when it comes to traffic engineering and stuff like that, that's a little that's a little more complicated, and yeah. there's a lot um, a lot bigger risk involved in what happens if that goes wrong. I mean, at least in, with most automation tools, you can copy a file over SSH, and then you can verify the file integrity to make sure it didn't like half copy over. And a lot of vendors also do checks on their own to see if like the file's corrupt. So there's once again, it's like not very risk adverse to automate something like that. You know, people want to go too, a little too crazy, but it's always about what what could go wrong if the tool stops working, and also if the tool stops working, is there anybody that can still do that task manually if they have to? Mm. So it's it's a I think it's a pretty fine balance there, especially when you first start on what's worth automating and what's not. Well, I think too, like your systems. I, I think what you're talking about is having um, creators versus uh, users right? Or consumers, right? So you're the creator of the automation. You have consumers mm -hmm. that are using the front end to kind of do that. What if you bring in a junior engineer and you want him to help on the creation side, right? So that you're not, I mean, uh, it, multiple respects, right? So as a business owner, you don't want these, as JJ uh, Boyd once told me, these um, pillars of knowledge where it's one person who has this amazing amount of knowledge. And if you ever lose them, right, which inevitably right? Nobody ever stays at one place forever. Inevitably, you're going to lose that person. So that knowledge goes with them. Um, so for one, any business owner wants multiple people being able to kind of, you know, do the same sort of task or whatever. But for your benefit, <laughs> you can go on vacation or you can take a couple of days off and know that, you know, if something, you know, something weird happens and they need to whip up some automation to take care of it, you know, this junior guy could uh, maybe assist with that or whatever. So I think, you know, imagine a junior guy coming in. Um, would he be able to start helping you assist in writing 
the automation in a month the way like you do it where it's like custom coding or compare that to like Ansible where he can look at playbooks copy and paste and make like simple changes uh hap well i mean even then are you going to trust the guy after a month <laughs> to be to be running automation so, so you could take the approach of something like unimus where um you 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 have an area where somebody could write a script for a vendor and like mass run it on devices something like that is a good a good middle ground between something fully custom and you have to write like complex backend code um, but there's a certain point where if you can't put in a certain amount of complexity it's almost not worth building the tool because at the end of the day you want to make sure that it's it's safe everything's rerunnable um, any of like the major problems you would run into you have some way to alert yourself or mitigate that problem and when you're dealing with multiple vendors that have different like CLI parameters or API or you know some devices have weird undocumented APIs you have to have some complexity on the back end mm -hmm. to kind of do things in a uniform way on the front end which requires you to write things with better practices um, I mean you could always have supplemental tools like even even though I'm building an automation platform I'm still probably going to have something like Unimus with some some um, like pre-built scripts and stuff for other people to run in case something does happen with the main tool. You could always build in redundancy and stuff like that, but um, some things are just not worth pursuing if you can't put in some level of complexity. Mm. If you want something that's complete, that is, uh, especially if you want to focus on user experience and like the user interface part of it to make it very easy and uh, comfortable to walk through a brand new person to start automating the network. You kind of have to put a lot of effort in to build something like that. Um, you know, because like something like Unimus, um, a lot of people could do work with it, but if they don't know scripting, they can't really use the mass config push that well. But the backups obviously are worth it. So if, if you want to get to the level where an entry level customer support person can use the tool, um, most of the stuff has to be kind of complicated to make it seem easy for them but in, in actuality the back end's complicated that that's hard to achieve um, without going past a point where like now not anyone can just work on the platform so it's kind of like wh what's more important it's like making it generally usable by everybody including like the entry-level CSR people or do you want to go somewhere in the middle ground but then it's more useful to power user type people so it, I guess it completely depends. Mm. Yeah. To that, I think, um, like Ansible, you know, they have these things called modules, but the module is really just a chunk of Python code. Like you can look inside right. of Ansible and you can see all the Python that's, that it's calling for each module. So it's, that's all there. It's just obfuscated. So if you wanted to really do something complicated, you could one, write your own module or to be honest with you, I can do most stuff in standard tasks. Mm -hmm. Here's with a caveat, it's not going to be as fast. It's not going to like when it's processing right. through the automation, it's never going to be as fast as if I just write a Python script. So like that, that's like one thing to kind of bear in mind. Um, but it does keep it simple and it does have some limitations like right out of the box. Like when you look at it, you can't do like nested loops. But what you can mm. do is I can do a loop and then I can call a task file that basically I can have inner loops inside of that, 
right? So I, I can I actually have done that multiple times. And it's yeah. it's like one extra tiny little step and can be annoying sometimes, but it still gets it done. And it's like I can take network guys that don't understand programming at all and I can get them to do this stuff. You know what I mean? So it's um but yeah. also like Jimmy, I see him like uh he'll break into like Jinja system, like you know, the Jinja two. Uh, and yeah, he'll do some complicated stuff uh, right there yeah. inside of it without having to make a module. So it's it's sort of hmm, it's sort of like built in that crawl walk run right there inside mm -hmm. the product. So crawl is you just use all of the tasks. And I try and like whenever I'm doing demos and everything I put on GitHub, pretty much all just uses like the standard modules to keep right. it as simple as possible. Again, the processing okay. is not as fast. Um, well, like it's if easier you, to get up and running if it's all standard modules and there's no extra stuff oh, yeah. to install. Or, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And you don't have to understand like any of the Jinja system. Not that it's complicated. You know, I mean, it's once you start looking at it, it's, it's really not bad. Um, and there's a lot of yeah. good uh, documentation out on the internet and stuff like that. Um, some of the documentation kind of makes me think of Microtik in that it shows you uh, what it does, and all the knobs you can turn, but it doesn't always tell you when you would turn said knobs. So mm. some of that you have to do a little digging or testing to kind of figure out, you know, when would I do this or when does it make sense to do this thing versus that thing. Um, but it's definitely, I don't know, man, this is all the, this is the crap I do all day long. So it just, you know, I can get mired down in the minutia of the things a lot uh, very easily. Um, but yeah, I was just really curious. <clears throat> from somebody's perspective who does some really amazing things by custom coding versus it's like at some point there's a balance, right? You have to figure out what that balance right. or what that tipping point is, right? Where I go with a, a standard off the shelf platform where I can get some minions in the company to help me automate versus I have this clean and beautiful piece of code, but I'm the only one that's ever going to be able to manage this thing. So it's like, well, it completely depends too on uh, what what is the landscape of equipment you're trying to automate on. So, uh, in the Wisp world, there's some devices that have no no like Telnet or SSH available. Um, some of them, like let's say you wanted to write uh, something in a software stack that's like, I want to I want to be able to reboot uh, every piece of equipment that we have built in the network. So there's a, probably a bunch of kit that you could SSH. Uh, hopefully not Telnet, but <laughs> you can SSH into, you know, run a reboot. What, yeah. Not a big deal. But there's some devices where uh, you can only really programmatically do that with SNMP writes. Or uh, you have to basically make an HTTP post to a login endpoint, capture a cookie, and then hit like an undocument, undocumented endpoint that reboots the device by mimicking like the UI because they don't have... A command line available and you can't do it with snmp right. so it's just a web interface with no like <laughs> oauth2 or token based system that you can log in with yeah so and a lot of the wisp equipment specifically you're limited on disk space so they can't put a ton of functionality on there so a lot of them are using very very tiny um web servers and there's a there's not a lot of extra stuff on there because they're they're limited on how much they can actually flash in the firmware so there's a lot of devices you can do that with in the Wisp industry where you you log in, you capture the cookie, and then you use that cookie to hit like a status CGI file or whatever. And it, you can get all the information, you can reboot devices. But when you, when you want to build a system that 
I can add any any piece of kit in the network to some sort of user interface, and they can click reboot, and the backend knows exactly how to interact with that device and reboot it. And so I think as long as you, because if if you don't take care in like writing tests or um, d documenting the code well, um, if you try to do it kind of a collection of scripts that's going to break down pretty quick when you need to start adding more devices into the network into the system so it depends on the complexity of, of how many devices you're automating against and what options are available to even integrate with them so sometimes that might require custom code so do you want to build an application that does like the 99% or do you want to have one system that does like the 60% and another that does the 40% so at some point it's almost worth it to build your own, depending on how complex it is, obviously, but and how much time you have. But there's there's some stuff that off-the-shelf stuff, um, it would be really hard to get it to do what you need it to do, depending on what you want to present to, like, customer support people. Yeah. But also keep in mind, you're the only Nick Arellano I've ever met working for mm -hmm. a WISP. <laughs> so most people don't have your kind of talent in-house. So that's that's that to me that's one huge hurdle um, that most folks would face, you know. That it, or I guess folks that would be listening to this, that's probably one big hurdle that they would be facing. You know, it's like how do I, you know, I, I love the concept of that, but but even then, you know, also um, we're talking about a very specific application to help, like sounds like CSRs and things. I mean, not well engineers too to be able to reboot and stuff. But mm -hmm. what happens if I also want to automate against like my server infrastructure? Right. Or I want to touch some cloud resources and do some stuff out there, too. Um, I mean, it, it, it depends how important it is. So like when in the WISP space, you've probably got thousands and thousands of thousands of devices. A lot of WISPs don't have the same scale of server infrastructure, so it's probably not as worth it. And also, you know, if, if you build things with good testing and you use pretty common frameworks, to build the application. It's not custom proprietary code from the ground up. If you're using, you know, open source packages for parts of it and you're using like a framework, well, uh, there's lots of consulting agencies that they could, they could kind of take off, even if they don't understand the WISP industry, they can understand the code and help them work on it. Mm. So it's not like it's impossible unless you write something completely proprietary and you don't use any open source tooling. That's going to be a lot harder, but, um, you know, you could prop, you could potentially automate, the cloud and server infrastructure as well. But I don't know a lot of WISPs that are very heavy into that. They just kind of have a couple of things. So that probably wouldn't be worth it. And I don't know if I would want like a CSR person messing with a server or any cloud hosted instances, maybe just like whatever it takes, like whatever your business is. And if your customers are getting bandwidth from you, they probably just need to do basic maintenance on that equipment. And we're just talking like firmware updates, doing reboots, maybe some like, um, some some graphical mapping stuff to look at like RF overlays on a map and um, everything's color coded and friendly for issues to escalate to like maybe engineering or tier two. I'm not talking about like, you know, you could just fire all your engineers and all these CSRs can run the network. It's just just enough to make the 90% pretty trivial for anybody to do. So then you can just focus on um, working on the harder problems, but also if the tooling gives you lots and lots of context to start troubleshooting well then a tier two person can start working on the network because they've got some sort of format they're used to from a system that we would build um 
to give them most of the information they would need to start troubleshooting the actual problem instead of just poking around from no information. Hmm. Well, how about um, I'm a Wisp and I'm getting pretty sizable and I would like a tool like that, but you know I I don't necessarily want to try and find a Nick because you're kind of a unicorn. It's, it's you know it's I, again I I don't think I've ever met anybody quite like you uh, before. I'm sure that, they're out there. Well, why? Well, no doubt that it's is quiet. that is. Um, very network savvy, but also capable of developing applications. So, I mean, are there reputable services you could go to and say, hey, you know, can you pick a framework for me? And these are the things I want to do and build an app for me. And is that something that people commonly do? I've never tried to. I no. Know. Okay. Uh, so the, the problem is people build networks differently. So um, I've talked to a lot of people who built custom automation around Sonar, like, because it doesn't do a lot of stuff that they need. And the problem is people build networks differently. They're using different kit, especially when it comes to like um, like power and DC components, like relays and stuff to do off-grid sites. Like there's, there's so many different vendors and different equipment and just network designs and architectures, like people using, you know, VPLS to aggregate like PPPoE or mm -hmm. maybe some something simpler or something layer two. So um, it would be very difficult to build a software stack that doesn't kind of force you to follow some sort of network architecture that is supplemental to the software. Hmm. So most of it would have to be probably custom built based on how you run the network. But I think at some scale, you have to have some kind of automation or stuff's going to start falling apart unless you just have unlimited labor force, but right. that's not practical for most WISPs. So I think you need some automation. Um, and the earlier you can adopt automation, the easier it is for you to ramp your business up. But to have an off-the-shelf solution that handles the 99% use case is just too difficult because people have, or even just with acquisitions, like if you have a network platform that runs your network and you want to acquire another WISP, like how long would it take you to forklift that network into the architecture that supplements your automation system? So it's like, <laughs> you know... In a perfect world, it'd be great, but it is it is pretty difficult, and it's hard to find uh, software developers who are also network engineers. Yeah, yeah, to understand like this is how this thing works. This is how I need you to interact with it. Like a lot of Wisps <laughs> do have nothing. Well, well, also probably don't know best practices for routing protocols to explain to a software developer like how do you, how I need you to automate this. You know. Well, so, so that's very. I even say, uh, how long have you been at your new gig? Uh, probably like, I don't even know, this like eight months or something. All right, and you are very know. savvy. You're very dedicated. You have all those skills, and you are still busting your ass <laughs> trying to get this thing in line, right? So it's it's not a, any small. I mean, it's it's no small feat, right? Right. Yeah. You have to have a foundation that is automation friendly to start really like taking off with that. So even even stupid things like um how you name devices oh, is yeah. kind of important because there's, there's a ton of stuff you can do with regular expression matching to like, like in NetXMS, for example, um, I use like naming convention to figure out what type of device it is and to like sort um, the devices into the containers I have in NetXMS and being able to, or an another common thing that I see, like we have these Tycon relays that have like four voltage inputs to just read voltage and then like four relays on them that you can power cycle equipment if they're DC powered. 
So like making sure that every single site that has a Tycon, voltage one is always battery and voltage two is always like the alternative power, just getting stuff so that you know the automation system can assume that voltage re voltage input one is always right. the battery bank is really hard when maybe you've deployed a ton of that kit out there but nobody took any effort or thought about like maybe i should wire these exactly the same everywhere and a lot of those devices you can't just um with snmp find the labels that are in the web interface it's just v1 2 3 and 4 so there's no way without doing some some kind of gross screen scraping to try to regular expression <laughs> match. Does that say something like battery? So you, you kind of have to like think if, if I want to do automation, there's a lot of things that you can do um, just in documentation and naming things to make things more um, supplemental to automation. Otherwise it's just, it's going to be really difficult, but the more that you can standardize your normal processes, the way that you document and label things, the easier it is for you in software to, you know, build configuration templates and do some auto discovery and intelligence. Cause like, you know, how you name stuff, you know, like what's a backhaul pretty easily, you know, what's an access point just, just by the name. And so everything else becomes a lot simpler. So getting people to do things from a cookie cutters t type of standpoint is very complicated on its own without even bringing automation in. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, best laid plans. Like, uh, even at some of my properties, you know, I'll have everything labeled and done up exactly right. And then the cablers will go out there and do something completely different. And it's like, well, I need to get this side right. up now. And so I'll adjust all my stuff. So it, you know, it doesn't fit yep. what I, you know, port one doesn't go to IDF one and port two doesn't go to IDF two. It's just sort of a random mismatch of stuff. That's always fun. But yeah, yeah, I, I totally get it. Yeah. Standardization is absolutely critical for a lot of automation stuff. Like I, um, I wrote a script or I wrote some automation the other day. Have you ever heard of CyberArk? Uh, I saw one of your blog posts about CyberArk oh, okay. at gregsoul.com. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they're like these security guys that really, um, have kind of the market, not necessarily cornered, but you know, a good portion of it, especially in enterprise around, uh, password security. So they do this, uh, CyberArk. It used to be called AIM. Now it's called central credential provider, central credential providers is generally what they refer to it as, but it's a system whereby you have a server or a cluster of servers that maintains all of your uh, passwords vaulted, like very secure and your automation can connect into the password vault and request the password at runtime based on like your credentials. Yes, I'm allowed to, and you know, all that stuff mm -hmm. and it'll pull it and it'll use it, but they have this uh, scheduling piece. <clears throat> that sits in the middle that's it's like it's sitting there and it's watching everything that happens and so it has the ability that you know after x number of uses it'll go and it'll change the password inside the system for a server well a lot of these people what they do is imagine you have a hundred servers or i mean devices right these could be network elements this could be um i mean it could be anything right it could security appliances firewalls load balancers it could be anything so you've got a hundred mm -hmm. of these devices in there Every time you connect in and use the password, as soon as you disconnect, it reaches out to that device and it changes the password on it and it changes mm. the password uh, on the uh, secure uh, vault server. And every device in your infrastructure has a completely different password. Isn't that, isn't that like bonkers? And so that's kind of crazy. It's like, how do you connect to that in your automation? So I wrote a playbook that within the play will 
comb through every device. And what it does is it looks at the host name of the device you're connecting to. It connects to the uh, central credential provider server and it pulls the password based on the host name. Like that's how I did the designation, right? So if you willy nilly name stuff or there was no consistency, right? It's like that whole system breaks down. Right. So you have to, you have to have like, uh, you know, in a database, you have to have a primary key, right? You got to have some piece of information that you're keying on. And uh, yeah. like you said, a system name is an amazing, uh, as amazing way to do that. Not only, yeah, like you were talking about, because then if you do complex naming, then you can say, uh, cause we always named our devices, uh, like, uh, like a site designation and then, or like, yeah. uh, like a geographic designation, then a site designation, and then what it was, and then it's like uh, it's individual uh, like ID inside, right? So you could pluck out any one of those pieces that you're talking about and utilize that for additional processing in some specific way. So it makes a lot of sense. But do you think a lot of WISP just kind of go into it, naming stuff, whatever? Like, I, you know, I cringe when I see people name servers like Star Trek captains and stuff like that it's like what are you doing with your life yeah <laughs> i mean I've, I've looked at a lot of wisp networks and there's like people don't really think about it but but then it becomes a problem when you're like okay now i, I want to start moving into automation and then you're like well everything i've been doing for however many years now I, has not been automation friendly so like you know, people will lay, label or they'll name a backhaul like just whatever the local site of the site is and I'll just be like this site backhaul or maybe the remote site backhaul. So, you know, if you're going to do something that's like discord monitoring or, or whatever chat system you have, or if you want to do some automation against it, it's like, well, you only have like one piece of the information there. So you kind of have to do extra work to um, maybe look at some neighbor table information or do some like IP address subnet analysis on what a, it's just like, you know, why, why don't you just do yourself a favor and, come up with some convention that makes the initial like discovery of that equipment in your automation system simpler. So for a lot of backhauls, I use like the abbreviation of like the site name to the other site name. And then like the, usually the models in there. And then the last part will say like BHM or BHS for the master or slave. So then in XMS, um, eventually I want to get this filtered and set up. So if I have a backhaul link in that XMS, well, there's certain things like, uh, signal to noise that I don't want double notifications for the master and the slave. So I just have to do a quick check. If the device is the backhaul master, here's a set of things to monitor. Hmm. And on the slave, don't worry about it because I have that on the, the transmitter side or the master side. Um, so naming things is, is pretty useful because most of these devices, at least in the WISP space, if you hit the just the generic OID for system description, you have like a good chunk of information on what the model is, like what the location is, what the role is in the, um, I guess in the uh, organization. I don't know. Like, so so naming things is a very easy way to do a good chunk of automation, and then you have to write less code and custom stuff for everything else. And as long as you are adamant on the way that you name stuff, it's 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 a lot more automation friendly. And at this point, I have NetXMS every time there's a configuration poll. It just rewrites the device name in that XMS to whatever the host name is on the device so that things look the same between in the device and in, in that XMS. Um, 
but th- most people that I've looked at their networks that are not like very large and successful wisps um, have taken no effort. There's no, there's nothing on there, mm. which is unfortunate because you don't think about it until you need automation. And then once you need the automation, you're like, oh crap, I shot myself in the foot. Now I gotta go I back took and no fix all of this. I set myself up for success. <laughs> yeah. Well, but it's like, you don't know what you don't know, right? Well, you're starting out. Exactly. So it's one of those things. It's nice to talk to somebody like you uh, up front. You know, I just remembered when I started at Fibertown, all the servers were named after Transformers. Uh, and oh, yeah. I was like, how was I supposed? So the, uh, the monitoring server was called Perceptor. Apparently, he's like oh, a transformer wow. that would, I don't know, turn into like a telescope or something. So I was like, it's like how am I supposed to know this stuff, man? It's like ridiculous. So I renamed it like Web Server One. It's like, guess what that thing does? You know, this thing is the web server. Oh, the monitoring server one? Guess what that does? It's the monitoring server. Yeah. <laughs> well, and if you got to scale stuff up, it's like, oh, crap. Now you got to think of more transformers. <laughs> it's like, oh, I got to spin up another load balancer or another, another web application server or database. It's like, ah. Uh, What's another? What's well, another transformer? Well, then it turns into like this f- philosophical discussion. It's like, well, you know, this transformer could kind of do the. You know, it's <laughs> like so. It just it, it eats more time than it's worth. It's ridiculous. Exactly. All right, man. Well, I had a note in here uh, to for anybody. So I mean, it's been a little minute since we talked, but anybody that went to the last Wisp of America to get your uh, thoughts, and you were there for a couple of days, right? A couple mm-hmm. of few. How many days were you there? I was there like. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I think. Three days. All right. Well, did you have a good time? Was it interesting? Dallas sucks, yeah, by the way. Yeah, interesting. Where's so. <laughs> that? Uh, yeah, a, a lot of people, This is a, it's a controversial subject, but uh, there was almost no mask wearing. Okay. They had, they had to announce a few times uh, on the stage that everyone needs to wear their mask unless they're drinking or eating. Um, that's a lot different than where I'm at. Uh, <laughs> that area specifically was, was interesting. That's all I'm going to say about that. Um, there was decent, there was decent vendor presence. Some of the talks were pretty decent. There, there's a lot of stuff that was kind of interesting to me. There's more involvement with like, uh, like Google, for example, they've got some new software and stuff coming out to help with CBRS and also some link planning stuff. So it was kind of cool to see some representation there, even though the whole panel for Google was, uh, over like a zoom call Hmm. and, uh, had to have somebody from the crowd go up there and like man the laptop because none of the staff was there for the session <laughs> so we were talking to people like from google and trying to ask questions and they could barely see us through the webcam on the laptop but i think it's cool that there's some some big companies coming into like wispa to do some demonstration on products and get to know some people um there's a lot more resources now uh allocated towards wisps especially in the software space so that's pretty exciting to me that's interesting do you um was there anything that uh any like scuttlebutt people were talking about i'm curious about like um i don't know like starlink or any of that stuff you know was there just mm-hmm. anything people were talking about out there oh yeah there there was panels for you know how to compete with starlink really rock and roll it was it was, it was a pretty big topic i mean that and uh like teragraph stuff was pretty big as far as uh, conversations, lots of stuff about six gigahertz and getting gigabit to the home uh, over RF, it, even at longer distances. So that was pretty much the theme is getting higher speeds, uh, n- new technology coming on the horizon, things like Teragraph and uh, how, to, how to not be scared of Starlink. <laughs> right. 
keep buying equipment, keep throwing that stuff out there. Yeah, don't be afraid. All right, well, rock and roll. So it was a positive experience. How was uh, how was traveling? I'm sure that was the first time you'd really traveled since. It was weird. First time being on a plane in a long time. And they almost kicked somebody off for not wearing a mask. Golly. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, man, what a trip. Zero tolerance, I assume. Yeah, they were just going to remove him. And then uh, I think they had him sit like in the, the very front area um, where like the crew usually is to make sure they would keep their mask on. Damn. Which I've never seen that before. I was like, man. They put him in timeout. Exactly, for the whole flight. <laughs> and they had to explain to him why um, they had to keep their mask on and why it's not a choice on the airline. Right. So, yeah. Wacky. Well, cool. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, it's a, it's a ways off, but I think Red Hat's going to have us like quarter three of this year start traveling again. So uh, for me, it'll be traveling for the first time, right? Because I, I actually got hired in right as uh, yeah. COVID was really coming in strong and we started quarantining and stuff so i guess that'll be uh interesting by then usually when they hire you said they, they they get like your measurements and they fit you for a hat and stuff they fly you out so are they gonna like bring in all the new recruits and do a meet and greet with people or it's just go I, off to do some sales <laughs> i honestly don't know i know whenever you first get hired traditionally what they do is they would ship you up to uh, north carolina to the headquarters and you do ship your you. first week there and then they supposedly, I've been told there's like this special room that you go in that has the red hats in there and you get your red hat. Well, mine came in uh, a FedEx box. So I'm assuming that uh, I don't get to partake or maybe I should say I don't have to partake because if I uh, did all that intro stuff again, it's like, dude, I've been here for over a year now. I like, I, right. I get it. I've drank the Kool-Aid. You know, it's like, I don't, yeah. you know, I, I know my way around and stuff. So. Um, I think at some point I'll probably get to go up there just to check it out or whatever for a day or two, but yeah, I'm not going to have to do the, the whatever thing, but you know, I, um, somebody I know, uh, flew last week and they said, uh, it really wasn't bad. They said wearing the mask was kind of uncomfortable at first, but then like once they were on the plane, they heard like some people coughing around and they're like, Oh, thank God I've got a mask on. He was like, I'm pretty sure from now on, I'm just going to travel. Like when I get in the plane, I'm just going to put on a mask. Yeah, I think it because that makes sense. It seems like uh, every time I travel, either just before I fly back or once I get back, like I get a cold, you know, and so it's, you know, trapped in a tube full of people. You know, if I keep a mask on and I don't, I don't, I don't pick up the con crud or whatever, I think I'm for that. People are disgusting yeah, animals. This is what I'm getting at. <laughs> Don't want to offend anybody. <laughs> people, people are real heated about that. I just don't want their germs. It's yeah, fine. Right. I don't want their germs either. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, I don't know. I don't think Microtix announced any mums or... Uh, what is what is Palooza? Oh, is that usually like October-ish? Somewhere in there? I'm not sure. I've never actually been to one. I got to go to at least one. The one in Vegas? I'm, I'm sure yeah. I'll go this year. So we can all get together and have a good time. It. Miller took me to a Korean barbecue last time we were there. I think we ate it like 11 at night. Man, it was delicious. It's the best time for Korean barbecue. <laughs> I think any time is the best time for night. Korean barbecue. It's pretty oh, yeah. awesome. <laughs> All right, let's talk about some of this uh, da -da, some of this Microtix stuff. Oh, well, I guess just as, a, as an update note, I was asking a little while back about um, Arista. They have a VEOS, you know, they're, uh, awesome. just their 
virtual EOS system. So they call their stuff EOS. Cisco calls their stuff iOS. Arista is basically Cisco iOS with just the tiniest of tweaks. Their configurations are almost identical. But uh, I was looking for it for a lab because I wanted to do some demonstration. Well, that compliance demo, actually. Um, and so I was like looking around. It's like, how do I get a hold of it? And then I figured out if you just create a free guest account, they have uh, VEOS lab editions for like every revision of their software. You could just grab it and put it in your virtual environment and play with it. I was like, this is brilliant. Why doesn't everybody do this? Bunch of ding-dongs. So yeah, so if you want to play with the Arista stuff, you want to lab some stuff, just go grab the VEOS for free. It's really simple. Uh, that's all I'm going to say about that. Yeah, now is a great time for labbing. I mean, when when I first started virtualizing to learn for certifications, um, you pretty much had Microtik and you had like the some Cisco images, but there was almost zero for layer two. There was no like uh, actual virtual environment that that simulated everything layer two as far as like VLANs and everything else you would want to do that like actual spanning tree like stuff that actually worked in a virtual environment you just had to use like the the gns3 dumb switch with like basic vlan stuff but now you know you got arista images um cisco has a bunch of layer 2 appliances and layer 3 appliances if you get cisco viral you get access to all the images but i think last time i looked at it uh they don't let you download it anymore you have to go through the whole uh in browser viral thing but I think you can still get the older images. Mm. Um, so now there's tons of options to virtualize and play around. And most of the major vendors now are making it available for people to like lab and do certifications because, you know, competition's getting a lot better. Um, uh, people are formalizing their training a lot better. So getting this into people's hands to play around with the CLI is probably doing a lot of good for their sales i'm sure mm. i still have this giant rack of lab equipment and i think i'm ready i'm pretty much ready to get rid of it all i think i use uh like four switches that's about it that's about all i use out of there anymore is like four switches and i think i'm going to take those and just install them in the red hat lab and oh, yeah. and put my uh well all the power now i'll use my power controller i'll take it i'll put it up there and then I'll just turn them on when I want to use them and then shut them off. Because I never write mem on anything. Like, I never save the memory. Yeah. So just to undo everything, I just, you know, turn it off and then turn it back on. Well, and then I have playbooks for any demo that I want to show that will I run first and it'll pre-configure it for whatever it is I want to, like, have in the demo. And then it'll just do whatever. So, yeah, I should just get rid of that crap and put it up there. Because I get tired of hearing it buzz over my shoulder exactly. when I'm, like, doing a demo. Noise in the power draw. Yeah. When at this point you could go online, get like a, a refurbished like Dell R610 or something. Like you can get like a generation behind stuff for a couple hundred bucks and it's quieter. Yeah. And you can virtualize it all now. So the only thing I use those switches, well, I mean, I, I use them, I incorporate them in a lot of demos, but the real reason I have them is to show um, iOS firmware updates on actual physical uh, kit. Right. So that's something you don't really yeah. like emulate in the virtual stuff. So that's the only reason I really like hang on to them uh, is for that. But if, yeah, if I just stuck them over in the lab, I would never have to hear them again. I wouldn't have to think about it. <laughs> and I literally, this giant rack of stuff that I've had uh, forever, like I've got some 7200s. I got three of those. I've got like four 2621s. I've got like five or six catalyst switches. I'll probably keep my Microtik stuff though, because I 
still need to lab that here every now and then. Okay. But that stuff's silent, right? Right. Yeah. But that's it. And that whole giant 42U rack will go away. Because that's, that's most of a 42U rack. Yeah, that's so weird. It feels, oh, kind of wrong. It kind of hurts my soul a little bit to say that. But I think I think the time has come. I'm actually going to make a note to myself uh, to uh, migrate that stuff to the lab and just be done with it. Oh, well. Such is life. <laughs> All right, let's, yeah, uh, let's talk about uh, a little bit of the getting hardware stuff. Huh? Yeah, listen, uh, you don't have to buy hardware anymore. <laughs> Get these free images. <laughs> start Start building your career. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Like if I was getting started today, yeah, I don't know that I would buy any hardware. It's definitely not as much of a, a gatekeeping situation anymore. Like you don't mm -hmm. like at least before with Cisco, you'd have to buy like a couple different versions of routers and make sure they have the actual the correct software licensing to test some of the stuff you need for labs yeah. and you need to have switches and serial interfaces. But now it's like you can get tons of images and you know throw in a fifty node network on GNS three or even G cable all up blow it all up so and it's it's free yeah good times all right let's see um so there has been some stuff on microtech so we've got to talk about a little bit of hardware uh, one stuff. thing i guess that's frivolous is the uh, microtech home app that they finally put out which i think isn't that like an extension of the exist no because the existing app they have is like winbox right that's not is that right. different than the microtech home app or no I think so. I think the micro to home app is, uh, it's more like, I, I haven't used it myself. I, I want to, but I think it's more of, um, onboarding for customers and it doesn't have like the full like toolkit and settings that the Microtik app has, gotcha. which I think is good because it kind of opens it up more a little bit for residential users, especially with things like kid control. If they can kind of build all that stuff in to a really nice user friendly interface where all the setup is like a step through a wizard or something. I think yeah. that's a good description. It definitely looked um, from the YouTube video that we have a, a link to. It looked like the Fisher Price version, right? Where you just log in and it's big, pretty knobs and there's only like four of them and it sets up all the features you actually need and then, you know, you're done. And I guess if you're savvy enough to need something beyond that, well, I don't know. I didn't, I haven't played with it, but it looks like something where you could give, you know, like when my nephew or my cousin calls me and says, what router should I get? Uh, instead of just telling them to go and get something simple from Best Buy or Amazon, I can say, you know what? Actually, you could use this Microtech and use this home app and Bob's your uncle. You'll be good. Because uh, I know a lot of people do, uh, uh, I guess, tech support for their family members. But, dude, I don't, I don't want to do that. Yeah, I mean, there's a few people that I put... Uh... I help them put a WAP on the side of the house to shoot Wi-Fi to the garage. Because they're like, ah, oh, I want Wi-Fi. I'm like, ah, oh, just put this out here and I'll Capsman configure it or something. And I put a little SSTP tunnel to manage it. But then they, then my dad like told my aunt. She's like, oh, I want that for my garage. I'm like, oh, I don't want to like do this for everybody. <laughs> but having some kind of app would be uh, pretty nice to get more people. Because just for the price, people got and they, they spend like, 200 some dollars plus on like these Nighthawks with yeah. eight antennas when you can kind of get the same Wi-Fi performance with a micro ticket for a fraction of the cost. Yeah. Uh, so making them have a higher market share in the United States, hopefully they'll listen to more of the features that we want as well. 
<laughs> if it helps them kind of blow up the revenue. Yeah, I thought great. I thought that was a tremendous idea. I'm glad they're they're finally going that direction. So it definitely definitely makes sense for sure. And hopefully they'll just keep building upon that. So what else is new? Uh, a couple of different things. They also introduced MLAG, and so uh, I think uh, I think Andrew Thrift, you know, like uh, on the side of his fighter fighter jet, finally, you know, like like stamped another uh, another kill on there because I know he's been pushing for this one for a long time. So they are adding at least initial support for MLAG in version seven. <laughs> Golf clap from Nick. So over exciting. There. <laughs> I I think I have crisp on. You probably can't hear this. I can't. Yeah, it filters it out. <laughs> That's cool. But uh, they even have a, a like a wiki article on it now, so it's uh, it's legit. It's official. It's in there. I don't know anybody that's tested it yet, but I'm sure somebody will eventually. I'm glad they went the MLAG route over just stacking. It's going to be pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, it seems like that would open them up uh, to a lot more functionality, right? Because stacking, you have to have generally like proprietary interfaces. You know, like that, at least that's what I think, like a stack port. But I guess some people just stack through like optical interfaces on the side or whatever. But MLAG's yeah. uh, standards-based, right? At least the, the one um, they're trying to adopt. Is that right? I think when I looked at it, it's, it's actually not... Uh standards based i'd have to i could be wrong on that but one of the big differences is stacking you have a master for the control plane and uh, almost every switch stack i've tried as soon as the master dies the whole stack is dead it stops forwarding traffic <laughs> uh, some of them if you reboot the kit it'll elect a new master and then you're, you're back on track but um, i've also done a lot of consulting for customers who are sold these big fiber store switch stacks that is, it's useless because they were sold on redundancy. But you know, when the master goes down, nothing. But with with MLAG, um, there's a lot of synchronization that happens across the chassis, and um, if if one just blows up, traffic still goes through. Just and um, I've been looking at a bunch of different options to use that for because layer two redundancy is pretty difficult, um, at least in the Microtik space, to get like true redundancy. I mean, with routing, you've got VRRP. Uh, but looking at different vendors, I was looking at Arista for a while and some gray market gear to see some stuff that's cost-effective. Usually, you have to go into like data center grade uh, switches, which usually have a lot more power requirements just to get something like MLAG. So the fact that Microtik is making this available on CR CRS3 is going to be killer. Yeah, that's pretty baller. Again, it's a version 7 feature, so if you're on 6, you're not going to see it. Well, I mean... I don't know. Maybe crazier things are happening. Uh, yeah, I suppose they could backboard it, but I, it doesn't seem like that's something that they would uh, end up doing. And I'm sure that since this is the initial phase, it's got a lot of uh, tweaking and tuning as it gets ready for prime time. So that's uh, it's pretty cool. It would be something to watch at least. And and with a grain of salt, <laughs> I'm I am more willing to run beta software on a switch than a router just for MLAG. Like I'm, I'm very tempted to test like <laughs> C the CRS three 10 gig switches. As long as the VLANs work okay and MLAG works okay, it's, hopefully it'll be less problematic than routing issues. So I'm, I'm contemplating 
putting some uh, some beta switches out there to be able to use them. <laughs> well, I, I'll see though. I did read the article, at least I skimmed it, and it said that it's required to be running uh, STP or RSTP, so it's interfacing with the spanning tree protocol in some form or fashion. So uh, I might wait a little while to see that calm down before you know, just you know, work out all the kinks, any bugs uh, before yeah. I put that into production. But you know, they're not going to find the bugs unless you guys test. So uh, more power to you there. folks, just yeah. not me. <laughs> Deploy it and scale and automate on uh, beta software. Yeah, go for it. Oh, <laughs> uh, forget it. We're doing it live. There you are. All right. So we talked about the M lag. So also. Uh, we've been burned by this before. Microtech inserting little April Fool's jokes in their uh, code. But this one doesn't feel like an April Fool's joke. Maybe. I don't know. I'm just going to put that caveat out there. But somebody was looking at the uh, router OS 7.1 beta 6. And there was a new model number in there. And it is CRS 520, right? So that's 500 series. The whole series that's completely unannounced, but it's 4XS, 16XQ, so that would equate to uh, four 25 gig ports plus 16 100 gig ports. So that's uh, a spicy meatball, which I thought was interesting because I don't think Microtech has any other kit with 25 gig or 100 gig ports, right? I don't think there's a single thing with hundred ports. So I'm I'm so interested to see how do you what the connect, price tags. How do you connect your other Microtech stuff to this switch? Is so curious. Well, it's going to come out with a hundred gigabit uh, high density switch. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm so curious on what the price point is going to be. This is going to be crazy. Yeah, well, I mean, just, I mean, who are they targeting with this? So I know mm -hmm. the likes of Mike, he's he's kicking some 100 gig stuff. I think Miller might be playing that space. We've talked to another Wiss, but I bet I bet Latvian Telecom could use some 100 gig switches. They probably could. <laughs> <laughs> it seems plausible, right? I'm excited. I mean, bringing, bringing one of the cheapest that I've seen at least, you know, I, I don't know everything about every vendor, but one of the cheapest options for an MLAG switch that like in a long, long time, and now getting into 100 gigabit capacity ports, uh, I think this is going to be a huge, a huge boost for them in market share. I mean, if you're if you got to go 100 gigabit, Microtech's got an option um, that makes the choice a lot simpler. Assuming there's good stability, 100 gig ports with MLAG, right? That sounds like yeah. a core switched infrastructure <laughs> to me. That sounds like carrier. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, that sounds like some heavy hitting right there for sure. So no doubt about it. Somebody was saying that maybe one of those 100 gig interfaces, you could have like some kind of muxing cable that would break it into, you know, like 10, 10 gigabits or something like that. Oh, like, like they did with the, um, the other switches where the, the 40 gig splits into four 10 gig interfaces. Yeah. Something like that. So you could use it as like, uh, not just, you know, hundred gig termination, but also kind of an aggregation switch if you wanted to, that would be kind of cool. Yeah. Combined with MLAG, yeah. you, you have this crazy backbone stack of 100 gig because i could see yeah i could see gig. the switch mounted then right above it or below it you've got an liu that you just you know you break out you know the 100 gig interface and then you have it slot into to 10 ports and then you know another one slot into 10 more ports so you do some pretty good aggregation with that i mean i'm using some nexus 3064s and so that's like 48 ports of 10 gig 
Um, but this thing, you know, if you had 16 ports at 100 gig that you could break into 10 a piece, that's 160 10 gig ports theoretically if that was, you know, something it could do. So that's pretty damn good density in what I'm assuming is a 1U package. Yeah. Hmm. Give me a, we'll give me a price, price speculation. I have no idea, honestly. <laughs> I mean, they, they don't really have anything that's even ballpark close to this. And I know that the optics in 100 gig are pretty expensive. I have no clue what this is going to cost. Probably, I don't know, five, six grand. No clue. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I, no I don't, I don't have any kind of, I don't have any kind of yardstick to measure this against. Like, I don't, I don't, right. I can't even begin to, to know what kind of price tag you would stick on something like that. But even at five or six grand, that really doesn't sound that bad to me. Yeah. Like if we can actually route that, that's going to be. <laughs> oh, you wanted to crazy. route it too. I thought you meant you just wanted to switch it. Out both. <laughs> you want your cake and eat it too. I get it. They're going to, you know, depending what they do, it's going to disrupt the market potentially. And hopefully it'll, it'll push other vendors to also start competing in that type of space. Hopefully we all get huge benefits out of this for sure well i mean theoretically like the 300 stuff they're starting to unlock the hardware uh, routing capabilities of those things and yeah. you know they can be pretty powerful so this thing uh you know whatever asics are going to be associated with that many 100 gig ports are probably going to be pretty beefy huh find out hopefully soon but it's like <laughs> is this going to be a version 7 release where like the timeline is going to be up in the air and hopefully we'll get both at the same time. I mean these I'm assuming these have to be running version seven. Uh yeah, I would I mean, I don't know. I would think so, right? But um I mean I don't know. It's just speculation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, this might just be a joke that they inserted inside of <laughs> Yeah, and because they have done this before. So I don't know. There's no there's no point going too far down the rabbit hole, but it's interesting. Very Interesting, nonetheless. Nonetheless, um, what else is on here that you're interested in, or do you have anything else that you're interested in? The raw filtering thing is kind of important. All right. So that that was um, that was one that John Osman picked up. He was saying that Hurricane Electric builds their filters for their peers like once a day. I guess it's on a schedule. And so they look at the routes coming from you, I guess the routes you're, you're sending to them upstream and then they'll rebuild their filters based on that. And I guess maybe yeah. as the assets probably as well, I'm not sure, but it, it, he certainly, they, they will, it will verify with RADB or like uh, Aaron's database. So not only do you have to be advertising them and that is like down to the prefix as well, like the, the, uh, like the net mask and everything. Mm -hmm. So if you've got some failover where you need to advertise, maybe um, the individual slash 24s and some slash 23s or 22s, depending on how you're handling failover with other upstreams, you kind of have to all, uh, advertise all of that at once, but also they, they will take what your advertisements are and they will verify it against uh, one of the routing registries to build their filter. And you, of course you can call in and ask them to rerun mm. the filter. So like you could always, have them do it but you just you got to be careful if you forget to advertise a chunk of ip space spe specifically the prefix you start to advertise 
after it's built, you're not going to get uh, traffic out there. Yeah. He or said, in, I should... like, uh, one of his, I think, I think the context was one of his customers stopped sending him a route for like 30 minutes, mm -hmm. like their subnet for uh, maybe they were doing maintenance or something. And that happened to be the window that HE rebuilt their filters. So they rebuilt it mm -hmm. without that customer prefix. Well, everything came up and he could look in Hurricane Electric's looking glass. But since they were down during the filter rebuild, they weren't actually, uh, transmitting that out to anybody else they were connected to so he said that was a really fun one to troubleshoot and as you said uh he you know once he called in he got him to just you know rebuild the filter and everything was fine but i'm sure he wasted a lot of time <laughs> trying to figure that one out yeah we just turned up hurricane electric at two of our edge sites and went through this so it was the first time actually setting up a route database to get everything all out there for them to verify i think more people should do this though because um they need to have some sort of good um mechanism for having a centralized database of who's allowed to advertise what to be able to match against advertisements mm -hmm. just to make the internet a better place um and I, I think um was it tommy he posted something about facebook advocating for some sort of oauth based system for api for this type of like um, routing registry to encourage um, more secure systems to um, list what IP, is, IP space you're allowed to advertise to make this process probably a little bit better. Um, so that's it's kind of interesting, but it's hard for um, smaller people that are just kind of starting their ISP and they're starting to peer, like having to learn all that stuff and how to submit their their IP address information and I don't know, mm. but you know, people have done bad things with the internet as of recently. And they'll continue so, to do it. So no big yeah, deal. So this type of stuff will help prevent a lot of that. <laughs> yeah. So that's a fun one. I was thinking, I bet you could, um, I bet you could do the same thing via some simple automations. I don't think that would be, you know, cause I don't know. I think of stuff and then I think, Oh, well, they're doing it automated. I wonder if I could make a system uh, that would do it automated as well. And then I think, but I'm not in the telco vertical. I'm just in commercial. So it's like nobody would be impressed, none of my customers, if I did that. The telco guys yeah. would be like, oh, that's baller. But I don't, I don't sell I mean, to the telco people. They all have APIs to see uh, people's uh, route information. And you could build filters and stuff based on that. It's just making sure that the integrity of those routing databases are secure and that there's some way to verify like you're allowed to advertise that at least with Aaron they have to swip all your IPs to even be able to submit it like when they first did the, their um their routing database um you could just put any subnet you want in there and save <laughs> it but now if, if it's not like swipped to you from the carrier like you can't even type it in it'll just reject it that's good um RADB not so much you can put whatever you want in there basically <laughs> it explains of course but Mistakes can happen. Yeah. Mistakes were made. Everybody's fat fingered something from time to time. Hopefully you're copying and pasting proper information instead. Mm. But yeah, I was thinking like it would be cool to, um, you know, have some automations that just look at, you know, all the customers that are connected to you and then look up their AS, uh, you know, their assets and stuff, look up their filters, do the comparison like they're doing and then, uh, you know, update the filter list for them. Of course, I wouldn't do that in Microtik because BGP filters are 
somewhat tricky and uh, buggy right now in version 6. So if you get it working, probably don't touch them ever unless you have a problem. Then uh, drag them around and then put them back in their proper order and then they'll start working again. So it's probably better not to do that. But you could do it against, you know, Cisco, Arista, uh, Cisco, Cisco or Arista or, you know, Juniper or something like that. That would probably be an interesting use case. Or version 7 beta. <laughs> Just kidding. Buzzing. <laughs> All right, man. Well, do you have anything else uh, top of mind? Not really, man. I'm just happy uh, the network's happy right now. <laughs> That's all I can ask for. Well, they say if mama's not happy, nobody's happy. So for you, it's if the network's yeah. not happy, nobody's happy. Right. That's that's exactly what it is. Uh, you know what? I find the only anxiety that uh, that exists in my life anymore is from the networks I maintain that are like my networks. That's the only thing that causes me problems. Because you know what could go wrong and what has gone wrong. Oh, well, it only gives one anxiety while it's broken, of course. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, that's probably a good thing. If it didn't give you anxiety, then you'd probably be a bad engineer. Yeah, I, uh, I yeah, I had some brownouts worry, a little man. while back. I'll fix it at some point. Let me just take a quick look. Yeah. No urgency. <laughs> it's going to be fine. Well, I mean, then that would make me any other carrier, I guess. But um, Oh, that's true. Yeah, I had some brownouts and... Uh, I lost some of my fiber store optics. Well, I didn't lose them. They just started flapping. So I had to like have folks go out there and do some replacement stuff. So now I'm going to put in backup links for all of those so that I can just fail over on my own if I need to. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, it's funny because it just, I don't know, man, it gives me anxiety when that stuff's busted. And I'm like, you know, and I hate telling people, all right, well, I've got stuff on order. It's going to be here tomorrow morning at 10. And I'm just, you know, it's like, I don't want to, just like, I hate that. The guy was like, ah, oh, thanks for really, you know, uh, like the apartment manager was like, ah, oh, thanks for putting so much attention on this. I was like, dude, I have trouble sleeping when this stuff is broke. It's like, <laughs> this is not about like, you know, me trying to do good customer service. I mean, I guess it ultimately boils down to that, but it's like for my own sanity, I need this fixed. That's why I'm so excited about MLAG because uh, especially like core switches or like anything that's switch centric, like it's always a pain, like you need to firmware update stuff, especially when there's bugs or for security exploits, but like then you gotta take the network down. So being able to build stuff, especially layer two resilient, like to have a whole switch blow out and you still have traffic forwarding, it's gonna be a huge piece of mind saver, especially when the entire network that I manage for the day job is across the country. Mm. So being able to kinda overlay these systems that's not gonna cost an arm and a leg and isn't gonna require uh, racks and racks of extra batteries to power like a Cisco or an Arista. It's going to be pretty exciting. Um, I've had a lot of issues with FiberStore Optics. Well, not just FiberStore Optics. I've had issues with Cisco Optics. Um, I don't remember the other brand, but there's a few that we had that are industrial for some of the big radios that are like $70 a module that just flake out. So being able to use more like LACP and, you know, if it starts to have some problems, being able to just disable a port, but all the traffic is still flowing pretty well. It's a huge uh, piece of mind saver. Mm, for sure, man. Yeah, you were talking about being able to do upgrades. I've yeah. uh, personally seen before, and I've heard horror stories of like Cisco stacks where you try oh, especially and do upgrades and it yeah. just shits the bed. Uh, it's the best, probably the kindest way of putting it. It just wreaks havoc on that sort of thing. So, yeah. Hey, you should be able to, to 
because the whole management plane and everything is um, separated. Like you should be able to uh, temporarily disable the interfaces on one switch, do the firmware update, um, maybe light them back up, then switch the other one off. Like you could do it pretty comfortably, uh, assuming everything works well. And that would be kind of incredible, especially for, because as long as you've got really good layer two redundancy, it's more compelling to start doing more VRRP things um, to start to like, because VRRP has always been available and it works really well, but then some of it, it's like, ah, but then everything's going to come down to the core switch. So is it worth the complexity? But now that there's a really good option for layer two redundancy, um, you can, people can start to build those things in a cost effective way. And it's enough, it's going to be cheap enough. You could buy it for home kit and test it and trust it instead of buying gray market kit and putting it out there. So, um, anything you can do to make sure that if stuff dies, you're not completely dead in the water. It's going to be pretty sweet. Yeah. It's so funny how, um, Microtix sort of changed my view on buying equipment. Like Microtix, the <laughs> only stuff that I've ever been able to buy brand new. Is yeah. Everything Especially else software updates. always been great. Uh, um, tons of Cisco kit just get nuked with a message plastered on them. Yes. I know a couple of people personally, it's like, you know, Cisco does what Cisco does, but when you buy gray market and you can't afford the support, being able to buy brand new and have lifetime updates is huge, hmm. regardless of the power draw savings and whatever else. Getting getting up to date software and CVE patches is is massive. <laughs> we just saw this <laughs> go wrong very recently. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wrote a little playbook to fix that for your stuff, and I uh, I put it on um, the West Talk thread on Facebook. I think Matt Hoppus said something like, uh, "But yeah, but." these commands don't work on all of the equipment. So if you put it across all of your stuff, you'd have problems. And I just replied and said, uh, if the command doesn't exist on the device, it just won't do anything. It'll move on to the next device. So you'll be all right. So he's like, rats you foiled me. <laughs> you got me again. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, that was the only response I had. So that's the only one I could talk about, but yeah, it's, uh, mm. it's nice, but you know what Cisco kit, when that stuff works, it just works. And it will well, if you secured operate. If you secured the management plane in the first place, it wouldn't have happened. That's what I'm but, saying. It's like the Cisco kit so. I put out there. It only has an IP on the management VLAN. That's like the only way to to connect to it. So pretty locked down. Even though it's older, and I get like the newest versions of firmware I can for those older pieces of kit. You know, it's they're still pretty locked down. And I've used Cisco stuff forever, and. You can harden it. I believe it. I uh, just can't afford it. <laughs> and you know what? For like my application, it just doesn't it doesn't do what I need it to. Whereas the Microtech stuff yeah. does. So you know, for, you know, it's, it's the right yeah, tool for me. For the it's job. mostly just power. I mean, there's a lot of sites that are just solar and battery. I can't I can't put a Cisco out there. It's just no way. No, you got it. Uh, no, that attitude. Like Man, it's so much power. <laughs> I could put I could put a fully redundant Microtik kit for less power draw than like one power supply of a Cisco switch, probably. Yeah, that older stuff especially is um yeah. is very power hungry. Not much you can do about it. Yep, yep. The newer stuff I'm sure is a lot more efficient. I just, you know, who can afford it? All right. Especially now when it's like um Years ago, you could get just a generic support contract and just get the firmware repository. But now it's like you have to get a support contract for that SKU 
in every other switch or router or like whatever you have to have a support contract for that model to get the firmware for that model which is kind of insane even some cisco partners i talked to um they don't just have access to all the firmware yeah the licensing so uh has gotten very clever where you can't yeah. you just have the same model of switch and get the firmware and then load it on all of them now it's yeah it's like individually licensed per device especially like features like it might come with base yeah. but if you want a feature it's like individual per piece of kit that you're licensing so yep. how dare they get clever and realize that their hardware just lasts forever and <laughs> try and find a way to monetize that so i mean i guess i guess they can milk it while they can but once uh these smaller companies quote unquote um start pumping out these awesome competitive products hopefully they will follow suit and it's going to be better for consumers yeah yeah it'll be so. a win all the way around i don't i really don't see a world where cisco can you know if microtech gets as reliable as a piece of cisco kit i mean you know i you could run over a Cisco switch in your car and it would still, you know, continue to operate perfectly. You know, as soon as Microtech can even, get bulletproof, then... Yeah, e even if between the MLAG and VRRP, you can get similar nines, even if there is some kind of failure rate. If, if for less money, you can build redundancy and use less power, which means smaller UPS systems. It's like, okay, you could buy the one piece of kit or I could buy multiples and have them as like an active failover and whatever. It's it's cheaper. Who cares? Like the other one will take over. I'll go swap it. Easy to configure. No problem. Yeah. Yeah, I'm on board. Pretty much all the networks I build nowadays are uh, Microtech unless, you know, something doesn't fit right or work right, then you know, I'll put a piece of Cisco kit in there to, uh, to, to fill that gap. So I'm like, in my network, I'm... Like 99% Microtech, there's one Cisco switch that acts as the core, and that's it. Then a bunch of fiber store optics <laughs> and fiber. I guess I don't buy anything name brand if I can help it. Although Microtech's name brand, what am I talking about? I was just yeah, talking name about brand the now. optics. <laughs> yeah. Although, I guess fiber store is like considered mainline. Because virtually everybody just, I know buys from them now. I mean, and, and most of the the optics, unless they're like special custom and have like heat sinks for industrial temperatures, they're all from the same factories. I mean, they're not making their own optics. They're just OEMing some some optics. So such is life. I thought yeah. I thought FiberStore bought like an optic manufacturing plant or something. I mean, it could be, but uh, last time when I looked, because I was looking around at a bunch of different options, um, a lot of the ones I was looking at came from the same warehouses in China. Mm. So, yeah, save a buck here and buy a bunch of extra spares. <laughs> Haven't been majorly bit by it, especially with uh, some um, some bonding and stuff. That's what I used to do with my Cisco kit. I would buy gray market, and I would just always have a spare on the shelf of like everything. Because it's so much cheaper when you buy the gray market. Eh, such is life. All right, man. We're at uh, an hour and a half. You want to stick a fork in it? Yeah. All right, bud. That I do. <laughs> if people out on the internet want to get a hold of you, Nick, talented programmer, uh, creative uh, network engineer, how would you have them do that? You can email me nick.a at hey.com 
or ideally join us in the Little Brothers Wisp Slack group. There's lots of awesome people here, people smarter than me. Um, so yeah, join the community. It's a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Name one person that's smarter than you. You. <laughs> nice try. <laughs> Let's see if that's on the board. Sorry, it's not. Um, incorrect answer. <laughs> Good try. All right, let's see if the uh, the Soul family can steal. Uh, if you guys want to find me, I'm Greg at gregsoul.com. It's an easy way to email me. I'm uh, regularly blogging on gregsoul.com again. You can add me on LinkedIn, do all that good stuff. But if you want to get a hold of me quickly, probably the easiest way is to connect to me via the Slack chat, right? I, I answer my DMs pretty um, pretty quickly. I don't look at it nearly as much on the weekends. I've been trying to you know do that work-life balance thing where I sort of turn off a little bit on the weekends when I can, but I'm usually pretty responsive on there. Um, but then again, I don't really necessarily need to be anymore because there's so many smart, uh, well, there's only one Nick A. I've already stated that, but there's so many talented engineers on there that you're going to get a good answer uh, from a lot of interesting perspectives. But you go to patreon.com forward slash brothers wisp, and then you can join, support the podcast, and get access to that Slack. I guess if you guys have any questions or comments, I know we have an interesting demo coming up pretty soon somebody's going to be playing with some teragraph kit they're going to be putting it through its paces and then doing a review and then there's also another software routing vendor that i think we're going to talk to very soon that's supposedly making headway in i mean they've apparently been doing it in the telco market for a while and now they're pushing into the wisp industry so we'll be talking to them very soon as well so any other uh products or interesting things you guys wanted to hear us talk about or talk you know, to some folks or anything like that, please let us know. Questions, comments. Uh, other than that, thank you, Nick, and uh, we'll see you guys next time. Let me click stop on all the things. I gotta come over here. And I click stop. And I come here. And I click stop.